You are listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is part two of the story of Ron Williamson. began the story of Ron Williamson and the investigation into the brutal murder of Debbie Sue Carter in the small town of Ada, Oklahoma. Ron had been the prime suspect in the murder, according to the local detective, Dennis Smith. He had once been the local sports hero, but had suffered a steady decline into unstable mental health. He had a reputation for chasing women around and had been accused a few times of rape and violence against women although his most serious conviction was for fraud on a $300 check. While he was in the county jail, he jokingly told one of the guards that he'd had a dream about killing Debbie, and this got back to Ada Police. They finally had something to go on to charge the local loon with the town's most notorious crime, its only unsolved murder. They also picked up a guy who had been known to be friendly with Ron, Dennis Fritz. The preliminary hearing for the trial happened on the 20th of July, 1985, before Judge Miller, for the judge to decide if there was adequate evidence to support the charges, and therefore to hold a trial. Ron was still acting out, and before the hearing started, some Ada police officers had told Ron that Dennis had given a full confession, implicating the two of them in Debbie Carter's murder. So when the unruly Ron was brought into the courtroom and he saw Dennis, he started to scream at him, and then he attempted to lunge at him across the tables, and the courtroom erupted in chaos. Barney Ward, Ron's lawyer, who was one of the most respected attorneys in the county, rather than request that his client be sent for a competency assessment, asked to be discharged from the case, saying that he didn't think there was any way he'd be able to carry out his job. He said it had nothing to do with his client's guilt. He didn't think that Ron was guilty, but he was so difficult that he made the job impossible. Confounding things was the fact that Barney Ward happened to be blind, and relied on an assistant to read documents and review evidence. This request was denied. In the end, Ron consistently refused to be present during the preliminary hearing, and because of this, He heard nothing that went on. If he had, there's no doubt he would have objected to the evidence that would be presented there. First, the court heard the autopsy evidence, which was followed by Glenn Gore. He was actually in prison at the time, serving a 40-year sentence for breaking into his ex-wife's house when drunk and holding her and his daughter hostage at gunpoint. Not only that, he had shot a police officer in the face during that incident before Glenn sobered up and surrendered. Gore had previously been jailed for stabbing his ex and had a number of violent assault charges under his belt. He told the court that he'd seen Ron at the coach light the night Debbie was killed and that he'd said as much to the police from the very beginning, 
though that detail was missing from his initial statement. Then evidence came from Agent Jerry Peters, who had examined the print left on the wall in Ms. Carter's apartment. He described how he had carried out his work, but could give no real explanation about his change of mind four years later, just that it had. The print, according to him, was Debbie Carter's. Nineteen of the twenty-one prints lifted from Debbie's house and car had belonged to her. None of them had belonged to Ron Williamson or Dennis Fritz. Next up was Terry Holland, who was a prison informant. She had form in this regard, and had actually claimed to hear a confession from Carl Fontenot in jail. Now she said she had heard a confession from Ron at the same time, but she hadn't mentioned that until two years later. Terry said that she had overheard Ron confess a few times while he was on the phone, once to his mother, but she was never asked to explain how it was that she had overheard this confession, despite the fact that the only phone in the jail was in the front office and that there would have at least been one staff member there to hear also, and yet none of the staff had heard it. She also never had to explain how it was that she managed to get within hearing range of the call, or the men in the prison for that matter. Detective Dennis Smith described the crime scene then, and went on to say that he had had both Dennis and Ron's handwriting compared to the messages scrawled in Debbie Carter's home. He said that an unnamed agent at the OSBI had verbally confirmed that the samples were a match, though Smith couldn't say which of the nail polish or ketchup messages had been written by which man, or how the samples broke down in terms of similarity. This was the only time that handwriting evidence would be heard in the case. Forensic experts from the OSBI were the final people to be heard, and they told the court about the fingerprints, hair, blood, and saliva samples that had been taken. Barney Ward then called ten witnesses, many of them jailers, who said that they had never heard Ron make statements, make the statements that Terry Holland alleged. He and Dennis's counsel, Greg Saunders, moved to have the charges of rape against their clients dismissed, as the statute of limitations had run on those. Saunders made an argument that the state had not met the burden of proving probable cause against his client, and made a motion to dismiss the murder charges. Barney Ward did the same, and also asked for funds to employ an expert witness for the defense to deal with the forensic evidence. Judge Miller said that he would take the motions under advisement and he would rule on the matters at a later date. However, matters eventually ended up before the district judge for more hearings and Dennis Fritz's charges were severed from Ron Williamson's. They would not share a trial. So a new preliminary hearing was needed for Dennis. Meanwhile, yet another inmate informant came forward as well. Ron and Dennis had been moved closer together in the county jail, seemingly for the purposes of allowing them to talk, in the hopes that the state might gather further information. Cindy McIntosh said that she overheard the two discussing photos of the crime scene that had been shown during the preliminary hearing. Ron had asked Dennis if Debbie was pictured lying on the bed or on the floor, and somehow Dennis saying that she had been on the floor demonstrated, according to the state, that both men had seen her in her apartment and had therefore committed the crime. On the 23rd of September, a drug addict who was partial to crank 
named Ricky Joe Simmons, turned up at Ada PD and confessed to killing Debbie Carter. He said he'd gotten clean and had started to remember how he'd gone into her apartment and killed her. The story wasn't consistent, though, and he told a number of versions. Sometimes he said he'd raped her, sometimes he hadn't. He strangled her, and he said at one point he remembered writing the messages in ketchup and putting the bottle cap in her. But the detectives who took the statement disregarded it as the confused mind of a drug user. They offered to get him some counselling and sent him on his way. While waiting in county jail, Ron was granted permanent disability due to his mental state and sent yet again for evaluation. But the issue of competency to stand trial was still not raised by his lawyer. Dennis Fritz's new preliminary hearing was held on the 19th of November. A new witness was listed for the state, a young guy who had shared a cell with Dennis named James C. Harjo. Dennis had known that James had been asked to report back what they'd talked about. The kid was pulled out of the cell for no reason every couple of days, so it was quite obvious. Dennis was so aware of it that he'd made up a little form which read, Dennis Fritz always says he's innocent, and had James sign it. And yet, when James took the stand, he told the court that one night the two of them were discussing the Carter murder and Fritz hadn't been able to provide details when pressed, and had gotten agitated and nervous, making James think that he was in fact guilty. James said that he had confronted him, and Dennis had apparently looked at him all teary-eyed and said, quote, We didn't mean to hurt her, end quote. He said Dennis had told him that he and Ron had gone to the house with some beers, killed Debbie, and then wiped the place down before leaving so as not to leave fingerprints. When Dennis heard this story, he lost it and screamed at James across the courtroom that he was lying. When Saunders cross-examined Harjo, it became pretty clear that he was lying. The signed notes were produced and he couldn't make the story make sense. But it wasn't the judge's place to decide on the credibility of the witnesses, and so Dennis Fritz was sent on for trial. The trouble started in jury selection when one of the jurors was asked his occupation. He responded that he had worked for the state. In fact, he had been the former chief of police in Ada. When Saunders, the lawyer for Dennis Fritz, found this out, he went to Judge Jones and told him that a juror had misrepresented himself and would have an obvious bias for law enforcement and the prosecution. He asked for a mistrial, and this was denied. The jury heard from the police that had examined the scene in Debbie Carter's apartment as well as the autopsy evidence. Dennis Fritz was barely mentioned in the evidence. He was a supporting character in his own trial, cast simply as a known associate of Ron Williamson. Spectators said you could have been forgiven for thinking it was actually Ron's trial. Then the jailhouse informants came forward, saying that Dennis had made admissions to them, or that they had overheard him talking about his involvement in the crime. The lackluster fingerprint evidence was given, and then came the evidence of hairs that had been found in Debbie's place. It had taken Melvin Hett nearly two years to complete his reports into the hairs he had eventually been sent to look into, after they had already passed through a number of hands at the local forensics lab. In fact, the report into Glenn Gore's hair samples had only been completed once Dennis Fritz was actually on trial, had concluded that a number of the hairs present in the apartment 
were consistent with Dennis, and an even greater number of them were consistent with Ron. Het spoke in technical jargon, which seemed to impress the jury and which also covered for the fact that hair fibre evidence such as this could not be used for identification. Those could have been Dennis's hairs, but they easily could not have been too, and this was something that Het left out. Dennis Fritz took the stand in his own defence. He told the jury that yes, he knew Ron Williamson and that they had been friends, but that he'd never met Debbie Carter and most certainly had not been with her the night that she died, nor was he responsible for her murder. He handled his cross-examination by Prosecutor Bill Peterson well, despite the fact that his hour-long examination consisted mainly of Peterson yelling at him and saying that because Dennis had lied about his marijuana conviction to his former employers, that he couldn't be trusted. Closing statements were given, and when the jury returned after more than six hours deliberating, they found Dennis Fritz guilty of murder. He avoided the death penalty at the sentencing stage, and instead was given life imprisonment. Ron's trial took place just days after Dennis had been sentenced. It differed very little, and in fact made a bit more sense given that Ron was the subject of much of the testimony. Ward deferred his opening statement until the beginning of the defence case, and so the jury heard from the informants who said that they heard confessions, and from the detectives who also outlined the so-called dream confession that Ron had made. On cross, they were not really able to explain why it was that the statement hadn't been recorded in any way, not even with a pen and paper, and why Ron hadn't been asked to write things out in his own words. As witnesses took to the stand to say that Ron had confessed, particularly Terry Holland, who said she'd heard him on the phone, Ron was unable to contain himself. He stood up and started yelling that she was lying, and that he didn't kill Debbie Carter. This would happen regularly throughout the trial. The autopsy, fingerprint evidence, and hair evidence was trotted out yet again, and then the state rested. Bizarrely, Ward decided to waive his opening statement altogether when the defense's turn came around, and went straight to calling witnesses, mainly prison officers, to testify that they had never heard Ron Williamson say that he'd killed Debbie Carter. Finally, after a short break, Ron himself took the stand. It wasn't ideal given his mental state, but because he had been appointed his lawyer and had no funds, and the judge had decided not to order it, he had no expert witness to try and rebut the forensic evidence that had been offered against him. He was all his defense team had left. And Ron, surprisingly, did relatively well on the stand, He answered questions competently and managed to get in at every possible occasion when he was being cross-examined that the prosecution and the police were framing him and that he had not committed murder. Nonetheless, the jury found him guilty. At his sentencing hearing, the jury had a number of statements to consider. A neighbour told them about how Ron had once grabbed her by the wrist Another woman said she'd been in a car with Dennis and Ron and wanted to get out, but Dennis wouldn't stop the car. Most serious, though, was a woman who said Ron had turned up drunk at her place when she was babysitting five kids and had tried to sleep with her. She realised that talking to him kept him calm, but she still ended up with injuries from being slapped and hit about the head. She hadn't pressed charges because he lived in the same neighbourhood. 
Prosecutor Bill Peterson said that Ron was a danger to society and would surely kill again. He was sentenced to death. After his trial, Dennis Fritz was sent to the medium-security Connor Correctional Center, which had a reputation for being a harsh place to be. But they had a law library, and so Dennis, with his inclination towards academics, began his study of the law. Ron was sent to death row at McAllister Prison. His mental health continued to fluctuate, and he began engaging in self-harm. He was hospitalized a number of times, but always made his way back to the prison, sometimes because he was just too difficult a patient. He got a new lawyer for his direct appeal, and they put together a brief. The main complaint was ineffective assistance of counsel, that Barney Ward had not done his job properly, and that if he had, there would have been no conviction. There were also a number of Brady violations raised, that is, that the prosecution hadn't turned over evidence that tended to not implicate Ron, specifically the tape of his initial questioning, before his health had declined drastically where he insisted on his innocence, and the confession of Ricky Joe Simmons. There were some familiar names in McAllister with Ron. Carl Fontenot and Tommy Ward were also being housed on death row, and they too were going through their appeals process. Both were granted a retrial on the basis that they were tried together and their confessions had each been used against one another, meaning there had been no way for both of them to question their accuser, who was also their co-accused. Eventually, both would be found guilty of the murder of Denise Haraway for a second time and were returned to prison with brand new death sentences. Ron's direct appeal failed, and due to his death sentence and his indigent lawyers, appointed and paid for by the state, he moved into the post-conviction relief phase of his appeals. The execution chamber hanging over his head ensured that things would play out to their very end in court. Dennis, on the other hand, facing only a life sentence, was shit out of luck when his direct appeal failed too. He wasn't entitled to help or lawyers for post-conviction relief, and so with his family's funds depleted, it was up to him to try and get himself out of jail. Ron's new lawyer, Leslie Delk, wanted to have Ron's mental competency determined, and filed an application in the Pontotoc County District Court. Bill Peterson filed an objection, and the request was denied. Delk appealed to this to the Court of Criminal Appeals, but the denial was upheld. Her post-conviction relief application also rested on this issue of mental competency, and she said that this was an issue that should have been addressed at trial, but relief was denied. Delk took it to the Oklahoma Court of Appeals and then on to the Supreme Court, and again all were denied. Finally, by August 1994, after Ron had spent six years and four months on death row, his execution date was set, September 27, 1994. This kicked Ron's legal battle into yet another phase. He was now seeking a habeas corpus hearing to determine whether the state was lawfully holding him prisoner. It's the last step in a death penalty appeal case, and if a hearing were to be considered, Ron could get a stay on the execution date. He was assigned yet another new indigent lawyer, 
one who was used to dealing with the last-minute nature of habeas applications, Janet Chelsea. Janet explained to Ron how her job and the motions and applications work and told him that he didn't need to worry about his execution date, that she was sure she'd get a stay before the four weeks was up. But Ron had cracked further after he got the news of his date being set and simply couldn't believe her. He prayed hard in his cell and got unusually quiet. He was no longer screaming his innocence day in and day out on death row. Janet put together a brief which outlined her case. Ron had had inadequate representation at trial. His mental competency was in question, and the hair evidence presented at trial was dubious. She was good at her job, and the brief was well written. It got the attention of the magistrate and clerks at the office of the judge who'd been assigned to hear Ron's case, Frank Say. This judge was familiar with Ada and knew Barney Ward and Bill Peterson, well enough that he knew he didn't care for Peterson at all. After two of his clerks and the magistrate told him that the brief deserved his consideration and that there might be something to it, he studied it himself and soon a thorough review of the case was underway. They studied the case for over a year, looking into every aspect of the trial and poring over transcripts and evidence. Then, on the 19th of September, 1995, Judge Say issued a writ of habeas corpus and ordered a new trial for Ron. His opinion ran to over a hundred pages long and outlined the many reasons he had decided that Ron did not get a fair trial to begin with. Barney Ward had provided ineffective assistance, never raising his client's mental capacity as an issue, not investigating Glenn Gore, who had been the last person seen with Debbie, not questioning the fact that Terry Holland had also testified in the trial of Carl Fontenot and Tommy Ward, not raising the confession given by Ricky Joe Simmons, not attempting to get Ron's confession thrown out, and presenting no mitigation at sentencing were just a few of the criticisms of Ron's former lawyer. The prosecution didn't get away unscathed by the opinion either. They'd not turned over the video from Ron's second polygraph, where he adamantly denied involvement, using confessions presented in quote-unquote dream form and overheard by jailhouse snitches, bringing a case with very little physical evidence. Judge Jones, the trial judge, was criticised for holding the Brady hearing on Ron's videotaped interview after the proceedings were over, and for not allowing Ron to have funds to hire an expert witness to deal with the forensic evidence presented against him, such as it was. On that note, Judge Say was highly critical of hair comparison evidence and stated that it should be banned from every courtroom given its unreliability. The opinion did not go down well in Ada, with Bill Peterson being reported as saying it was ridiculous and that the case had been considered at state and Supreme Court level and that this was the first that they were hearing of problems with it. But of course, the Supreme Court had never considered the merits of Ron's case, only whether or not it was to be heard, and that was what had been denied. Unsurprisingly, the state appealed this decision to the Tenth Circuit Court in Denver. Meanwhile, Ron's legal team had been concentrating on trying to get him some sort of treatment. There was a facility on the grounds of McAllister Prison to deal with inmates who had long-term physical and mental health problems, but it was not open to those on death row, and Ron continued to decline, 
It was filthy, with long, matted hair and nicotine stains all over his skin. His teeth were rotting from his mouth, and he was skin and bones. He desperately needed proper treatment for his mental health to stop his physical decline. He continued to have psychotic outbursts, and his behaviour was beginning to take its toll on the wardens on death row, but it wasn't until these continued outbursts meant that he was no longer deemed competent to be executed that he managed to get a transfer to the Special Care Unit, or the SCU, for treatment. While there, medical personnel would also be able to force him to take his medication, meaning he would likely be much easier to handle. Treatment progressed slowly, but was all undone when Ron, for some reason, was transferred back to his old cell on death row for two weeks. There were suspicions that this was either because of an upcoming execution, or because the state feared that Ron being in the SCU would only bolster his case in the upcoming appeal. Ron's lawyers threw a fit when they heard he'd been moved, and so managed to get him transferred back to the SCU but the little progress that had been made with his condition had been undone by that point. Dennis was still on his own, though. He had gone through post-conviction relief on his own, writing all his own legal documents, all of which were denied. But in March of 1996, he finally wrote to the Innocence Project in New York. He'd heard about Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld on TV, and knew that Mr. Sheck had been on O.J. Simpson's team at his trial. After sending on a questionnaire and forensic reports and trial transcripts, they agreed to take his case. But the Tenth Circuit denied his appeal, and the Supreme Court refused to hear his case in March of 1997. The next month, the court affirmed the ruling of Judge Say, and although they disagreed with him about the hair evidence, they too ordered a retrial for Ron Williamson. Ron's case was then transferred to another lawyer, one who had initially worked on his appeals years earlier, Mark Barrett. The focus was on getting the DNA evidence from the crime scene tested and compared to Ron, which he was all for, and to prepare for a competency hearing. Bill Peterson, the prosecutor, was all for it too, thinking that if the DNA was to be tested, it would once and for all prove that Ron had murdered Debbie Carter. But Ron told his lawyers he had nothing to hide. The DNA would have to wait until they had some money, though, and so the matter of Ron's health was dealt with first. Back in Ada. In July of 1997, Ron was transferred to East Central Hospital in Venetia for treatment. It was his fourth admission to this facility, and he was housed in its most secure ward, where there were bars on the window. But at least he had his own room and was assessed and treated. Dr. Curtis Grundy wrote to the court in Ada and said that on admission, Ron was not competent to stand trial. Two months later, according to Dr. Grundy, Ron had improved dramatically. He told the court that Ron had always understood the charges against him, but he had not always been in a position to assist his defence. Grundy said that now he was, but that he would require ongoing treatment and care to maintain this. So the judge in Ada set a date for the competency hearing, December 10th. 
Ron was annoyed at his new team, headed by Mark Barrett, about the whole thing. He just wanted to go ahead and have a trial to prove his innocence. But he took to the stand in front of Judge Tom Landreth, who he'd once played baseball with in his youth. Ron rambled on about Ricky Joe Simmons and the ketchup bottle used in the crime, saying that he'd heard sports commentators talking about it on TV while he was in jail. Barrett let him talk for about ten minutes on the stand to demonstrate how disorganized and out of touch with reality Ron's thoughts were. Ron's previous defense teams also gave evidence saying that they were happy to see how much Ron had improved in the months that they hadn't seen him, but that he was fixated on Ricky Joe Simmons and would not be able to assist in his own defense. Dr. Sally Church examined Ron three times for his own legal team, and she was the first expert to actually ever testify to Ron's mental state. She said he had schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, both of which were very difficult to treat and required medication, but due to the nature of those illnesses, it was also very difficult to ensure that the patient took those medications. She said that with further treatment, it may be that he would be competent to stand trial, but he certainly was not at this point. Dr. Grundy had been sat in the court listening to all the testimony and watching Ron speak, and after a short recess, Bill Peterson informed the judge that they were willing to agree that Ron was not competent at that time, but might be in future. Mark got Ron transferred out of Pondotoc County Jail and back to the hospital at Venita to continue treatment, which was something that Ron was not at all happy about. He had wanted to stay in Ada and try to speed his trial along, though how helpful he really could have been is another question. But it was a good job he'd been transferred back to hospital. A dentist was called for him while he was there to treat a sore on the roof of his mouth. It turned out it was cancer. The doctors were able to remove it, but said that if it had gone untreated for much longer, it surely would have spread. Ron later thanked his attorney for sending him back to East Central, saying that it had saved his life. Dennis was still languishing in the Connor Correctional Centre, and he was still in contact with the Innocence Project and Barry Sheck himself, but there was little progress being made. Through his own studies, Dennis had realised his initial habeas had been filed in the Western District Court in Oklahoma, when Pontotoc County was actually in the Eastern District. They'd filed in the wrong jurisdiction, and it was possible that because of this mistake he might get a second bite of the apple he refiled his habeas papers. But by the end of January 1999, the wrangling in Ron's case of who would pay for what testing and where had been settled, and on the 16th and 17th of that month, LabCorp in Raleigh, North Carolina, tested the semen samples from the Carter crime scene that had been preserved on the torn underwear, the sheets, and on the swab samples. Tested the semen samples from the Carter crime scene that had been preserved on the torn underwear, the sheets, and on the swab samples. This DNA profile was tested against both Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz. Neither matched. Two days later, Judge Landwith delivered the news to the lawyers on the case, and word started to spread. Ron's sisters, as well as Mark Barrett, drove out to Venita to deliver the news to him personally. He'd made a lot of progress over the previous few months and was even starting to put on weight again. 
He broke out in an old gospel song that he used to sing in church as a child when they told him the good news. Dennis Fritz got the news about the DNA by someone yelling down the hall while he was locked in his cell for headcount. He'd heard his name, something about being a free man, and the phrase DNA, but that was all. No one had called him, and he didn't know what was going on. He had to wait until the next morning to get access to a phone to call Barry Sheck and have it confirmed that the semen on the scene didn't match Ron, or him. Mark Barrett filed a motion to have the charges against his client dismissed, but Bill Peterson could not accept that Ron and Dennis had not committed the murder. He wanted further testing done on the hair. Judge Landwith wanted to get the matter settled as soon as possible and so scheduled a hearing for the 3rd of February. Things were moving quickly. Bill told the local newspaper that he was sure DNA testing of the hair would prove him right, that Ron and Dennis had killed Debbie Carter. At the hearing, Landwith decided that the testing on the hair would go ahead before he made a decision on the motion. It was to be done quickly, though, he said. Peterson, in return, said he wouldn't oppose the dismissal of the charges if the hair samples weren't a match. Ron's attorneys had two things to do now. Negotiate with the prosecution as to how and where the hair samples were to be tested, and to prepare for a retrial in case something went wrong with that evidence. Bill Peterson seemed so confident that both Barrett and Sheck thought he might know something that they didn't, or worse, given that the state had control of the evidence for so long that something might have been tampered with. So, with a retrial in mind, Mark Barrett and his second chair, Sarah Bonnell, travelled out to Lexington Correctional Centre to do a routine interview with a witness that had placed Ron at the coach light the night Debbie was murdered, Glenn Gore. He'd heard about Judge Say's opinion and the direction for a retrial, and knew that eventually lawyers involved in the case would be back to talk to him. He said that he'd only testified against Ron and Dennis because Bill Peterson had said he'd go after him if he didn't. Gore made an affidavit swearing that he'd been selling meth in Ada in the 1980s and some of his business was with the local cops. Gore's interaction with the local cops was basically dictated by what was going on in his drug dealing. If he owed money, he'd be picked up, and if all was good, he'd be let go. He stopped dealing at some point and said that after that the Ada cops had it out for him. He blamed his 40-year sentence on this grudge that they had. He said that the police had told him that Ron and Dennis were guilty of Debbie's murder, so he said what the cops wanted him to and identified Ron as having been in the bar, though he never did see him that night. Barrett and Bonnell asked Glenn if he'd be willing to take a polygraph about this, which he said he would. Then they asked if he'd be willing to give a DNA sample. Glenn said that there was no need for that. Back in 1995, the state of Oklahoma had taken swabs from all of its prisoners to make a DNA database. His DNA was on file. Mark Barrett asked if it was possible that Glenn's DNA could have been on Debbie Carter, and Glenn said, well, yeah. He explained he'd danced with Debbie about five times the night she'd been murdered that his DNA was probably all over her. But Barrett explained that that wasn't how DNA worked. It came from fluids, from blood and saliva and semen, and that the sample that the state had from this crime scene was semen. Glenn Gore got quiet. Then he got agitated and left the room, only returning when his so-called legal advisor was with him. 
This was just another inmate who'd taught himself bits of law while inside. Ron's lawyers asked Glenn if he'd be willing to give a sample on the spot, to do a mouth swab. They got a Q-tip from the prison warden. Glenn took it from them, snapped it in half, and then cleaned his ears with it before sticking it in his pocket. He was not going to give them DNA. And if they wanted to talk to him again, they should find him at his workplace, he said. It turned out Glenn Gore spent his days out with the public works department, like he had a regular job. The two lawyers called the OSBI office when they left the prison and asked for Glenn Gore's DNA sample from the database to be tested against the sample they had from the Carter crime scene. On the 11th of April, the five labs that were involved in the testing of the hair evidence came back with both the results of microscopic infrared photography of the hairs and for the DNA testing of the various samples. The hairs from the crime scene were in no way consistent with hairs from either Ron or Dennis. Bill Peterson was shocked. He told the local paper in Ada, quote, At this point, we don't know who the hairs belong to. We haven't tested them against anybody but Fritz and Williamson. There was no question in my mind when we started the whole DNA process that these two men were guilty. I wanted it sent off for the purpose of getting these two guys. When we got the results on the semen samples, I was so surprised my jaw dropped to the floor. End quote. Peterson had well and truly been convinced that somehow he had been right all along. The first Dennis Fritz knew of any of this was when a warden turned up at his cell and told him to pack up his shit. He wasn't told where he was going, but he could guess it was the county jail out in Ada. He grabbed his stuff and drove two and a half hours across the state with one of the jailers from Pontotoc County Jail. When he got out of the car in Ada, a reporter from the local news was waiting for him. Dennis made a statement to them. He said, quote, The evidence they had against me was insufficient, and if the police had done an adequate investigation of all the suspects, this may never have happened. When you don't have the money to defend yourself, you're at the mercy of the judicial system. Once you're in the system, it's almost impossible to get out, even if you're innocent. End quote. <laughs> On the 15th of April, Judge Landreth held a hearing. Barry Sheck had come all the way from New York to hear it too, as did the national news outlets. The courthouse was surrounded by early morning, and Judge Landreth had to hold a sort of lottery to decide which reporters would actually get into the courtroom. The Williamson and Fritz families gathered to await the news, as did Debbie Carter's who came to see the men that they had believed killed their sister for 17 years. Photographers and videographers were ushered into the jury box to record the proceedings. The state joined the motion to dismiss. They weren't going to argue it, just like Bill Peterson had promised. Mary Long from the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation sat on the witness stand and gave details of the testing that had been done in the case. She said that 17 hairs had been taken from the crime scene, of which only four could be matched to a DNA profile. Two had belonged to Debbie. The other two did not match Ron or Dennis. Then she gave evidence of the DNA from the semen sample. It didn't match Ron or Dennis either. 
When Bill Peterson stood up, he told the court that one hair found under Debbie Carter's body and another found in her bedding had been matched to Glenn Gore. So had the semen sample. Judge Landreth had been aware of the findings and had told Bill that he was free to announce them at the hearing if he wished. It went some way to cover for the fact that he went on to say that in 1988, the state had had overwhelming evidence in his view against the two men who were about to be set free. He offered no apology to them for their lost time or the mistakes that had been made. Then Judge Landreth asked Ron and Dennis to stand and told them that the charges were dismissed. A few people applauded, but most remained quiet. Ron immediately ran from the courtroom and lit a cigarette outside on the steps as a free man, before joining the rest of the legal team and families to take photographs for the newspapers. Meanwhile, Peggy Stilwell was walked out of the courtroom by her family. She was in shock. No one had told her about the evidence against Glenn Gore, and she was overwhelmed at the idea that they had to start all over, go back to bring charges against somebody else. And while the Williamsons and the Fritzes were celebrating with dinners and parties and sing-songs and church services, Glenn Gore was on the run. As the hearing date approached, he'd begun to worry, and while out cleaning ditches for the county, he'd slipped away. He'd wandered off into a wooded area, found his way to another road, and hitchhiked himself into freedom. It was yet another sensational aspect of the story reported by all the media that had descended on the small town of Ada. All was not entirely smooth for Ron's reintroduction to society. It started when his sister Annette tried to arrange the church hall for a party to welcome Ron home, but the pastor refused, saying that he was afraid that it might bring trouble. Some people didn't believe that Ron was innocent, and there were also mutterings about threats from people close to the Carter family. The party was instead held at Annette's house, but even then there were problems. Annette got a call that night to say that members of the KKK had been hired to come and kill Ron. The windows and doors were shut tight, and for some reason her first thought was to call the cops, but they get no help from the Ada PD. Worse, an interview with Bill Peterson graced the front page of the Ada newspaper. Not only did he take credit for the DNA being tested, he then went on to say that he'd never said Fritz and Williamson were innocent, only that he couldn't prosecute them with the evidence he now had. He'd done the right thing back in 88, he insisted. If new evidence came to light implicating them, the rules of double jeopardy wouldn't apply, and Ron and Dennis could be tried again. Glenn Gore wasn't the only person left on the suspect list, he said. It was pure fantasy on Peterson's part, born of the fact he couldn't accept that he'd been wrong and that he'd made a mistake. After six days on the run, Glenn Gore got in touch with a lawyer. He was ready to give up and turn himself in, but for some reason, he didn't want to do that in Asia. Dennis moved back to Kansas City to live with his mother, and Annette bought Ron a trailer to live in out in Springfield, Missouri. But the two still lived under the shadows of their convictions. Pontotoc County had yet to bring charges against Glen Gore. Months would go by with them insisting that they needed more evidence, despite the DNA match. Ron and Dennis feared that they might be arrested again. And then the two men brought their civil suit, 
They sued the state of Oklahoma, Pontotoc County and the Ada Police Department, Bill Peterson, Detta Smith, jailers from Ada, and wardens from the prisons that they had spent 12 years in, claiming that their constitutional rights had been violated. It would seem clear to a reasonable person that they were due some sort of redress, some sort of compensation for what they'd been through, and the ongoing damage it had caused in their lives. But it wasn't at all that straightforward. They'd have to show that their rights had been violated, and that the normal immunity that might apply to a judge or a prosecutor or a police officer had been lost when they went beyond the bounds of their employment somehow. It was not a given that they would win a case. It would be an uphill battle. Most exonerees saw no compensation for their lost years at all. Ron found living in the trailer difficult, although that's not quite accurate. More, he had difficulties living in the trailer. He began drinking again and got paranoid and covered over his windows with newspapers and taped his door shut. He slept with a butcher knife, afraid that he'd be hauled back to death row at any minute. When he started to bring the knife out and about with him, something had to be done. His sister Annette had him checked into another mental health facility, but he couldn't stay there. There were a few short stints in nursing homes, which provided the stability and care that he needed, but these didn't work out. He was only 47, and not ready to sit with frail old men. Eventually, they found him a rehab program in Norman, Oklahoma, and he took to it well. He shared a room, there was no drinking, and his medication was supervised. They provided skills training, how to cook for yourself, how to manage public transport, that kind of thing. Ron did well there. He got back into the church and he played guitar at local cafes for tips. But as he moved up in the program, things got more lax, and he started drinking again and missing his medication. His family worried that he'd never be able to live alone, unassisted, again. In October of 2001, depositions in Ron's civil suit began. Bill Peterson had asked for a summary judgment, basically to have him dismissed from the case, saying that he had only been doing his job. But the court found that he had, in fact, a case to answer. He had possibly gone beyond his duty of prosecuting the case and involved himself in the investigation, both when he asked the fingerprint expert to reconsider their finding, and based on an affidavit sworn by Glenn Gore, who said that Peterson had threatened him, saying that if he didn't testify against Ron, then his fingerprints might be found in Debbie Carter's apartment. The ruling issued in February 2002 stated, quote, in this case, the circumstantial evidence indicated a concerted pattern by the various investigators and Peterson to deprive plaintiffs of one or more of their constitutional rights. The repeated omission of exculpatory evidence by the investigators, while including inculpatory evidence, the inclusion of debatedly fabricated evidence, failure to follow obvious and apparent leads which implicated other individuals, and the use of questionable forensic conclusions suggests that involved defendants were acting deliberately towards the specific end-result prosecution of William and Fritz, without regard to the warning signs along the way that their end-result was unjust and not supported by the facts of their investigation." End quote. 
A couple of months later, the case settled out of court for an undisclosed amount, with the many defendants, of course, acknowledging no wrongdoing. It was rumoured that it may have been for in and around $5 million. The men took initial lump sums, and the rest was to come in a monthly annuity. Dennis bought himself a house and took care of his mother and daughter. By this time, Annette had moved from Ada, the environment too hostile for her to bear any longer. Despite the fact she had called the town home for over 60 years, she, her family, and Ron moved north to Tulsa. Ron initially lived with her, but when the settlement came, he bought a two-bedroom condo. And he was soon back in the same haunts he had been 20 years before in Tulsa spending money without a care in the world, at bars and strip clubs, and making all sorts of new friends. Finally, Annette had enough, particularly after an incident where Ron had invited his favourite dancer, her two kids, and their father to live with him rent-free in his second bedroom. When Annette found out, she gave them marching orders and got a court order for Ron. The apartment was sold and Ron went to yet another nursing home. That didn't last long and soon Ron was staying with his old high school and baseball buddy, Bruce, who was a trucker at the time. Ron went with him on trips. This lasted three months before they argued and Ron moved back in with Annette. Then he was on his own again in a long-term motel, again for about three months, before it was back to the nursing homes. He'd stay in each one until he got bored or found something to dislike, and then Annette would go about finding another place for Ron to stay. He simply wasn't able to function on his own without supervision. 2003 finally saw Glenn Gore stand trial for the murder of Debbie Carter. She had been lost among the egos and the ass-covering that followed Ron's habeas appeals, a special prosecutor was brought in to try the case, Bill Peterson, having declared a conflict of interest. After the jury heard his laundry list of violent offences and the DNA evidence, Gore was quickly convicted. Despite all that, Ron called Judge Landwith throughout the trial, telling him that they needed to forget about Gore. It was Ricky Joe Simmons who had really done it. Even then, that wasn't the end of prosecutions relating to the murder of Debbie Jo Carter. Gore, too, had a lengthy appeal process to go through, and his conviction was overturned in this process, with a retrial ordered. This was because Judge Landreth had not allowed Glenn Gore's defence team to speak about the fact that someone else, in fact two someone else's, had been tried and convicted of Debbie's murder before. In the end, though, Gore was found guilty yet again, and on the 21st of June 2006, during sentencing, a deadlocked jury gave Gore life imprisonment for the murder. Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot are still serving out their sentences for the murder of Denise Haraway. They have been in prison for 33 years and continue to seek relief through the appeals process. The Innocent Man, the Netflix documentary, released last month, tells the story of wrongful convictions in Ada, Oklahoma, and details Tommy and Carl's battles to clear their names. More details on their cases are provided there, and it's definitely worth watching, if you haven't already. Ron Williamson died in December of 2004. 
despite his long enforced sobriety in prison, he was diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver earlier that year and faded fast. He wasn't a candidate for treatment and so suffered through the pain of an enlarged liver. He couldn't lie down or even sit comfortably. And then, as he neared the end of his six-week-long illness, pain medication finally allowed him to lie down again. His friends and family gathered around him in those final days. He was 51 years old. His funeral was held on the 4th of December, and he was buried in Ada on the 7th of December, 22 years after Debbie Sue Carter was last seen alive. Ron was laid to rest in a cemetery across the town from where she herself was buried. Police and Pontotoc County prosecutors still maintain that there was no misconduct on their part in the investigating and trying of cases in the 80s and 90s in Ada, Oklahoma. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or tell a friend. It really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. If you want to hear me have a very casual and Prosecco-fueled conversation about this case, the death penalty, competency, and mental health, you can head on over to Ignorance Was Bliss podcast, where you'll find a special episode that Kate and I collaborated on. It's a frank discussion, very different from the format here. But if you want to know more about what I think about Ron Williamson's case, that would be a place to go. A big thanks this week to our newest supporters on Patreon, and particularly a big thank you to Catherine Besler, who you heard introduce the podcast this week. This case was requested by her as a top-tier supporter of the podcast, and again, it has been so interesting to look at the American justice system for a change. Next time, we'll be back in Ireland, though, just after the new year in 2005, an 11-year-old boy went missing, resulting in a 700-person strong search in East Cork. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources can be found in the show notes or by visiting our website, www.mensreapod.com. This two-part series is primarily based on the book The Innocent Man by John Grisham. It's a highly recommended read, and you'll find the links to it in the show notes too. Till next time, don't do anything I won't do. Tested the semen. Tested the semen. Tested the semen samples from the Carter crime scene with both the results of microscopic in, with both the results of microscopic infrared photography with both the results of microscop with both the results of microscopic and judge landreth had to hold a short and judge landreth had to hold and judge landreth and judge and judge landreth